Tales from the Vault, Episode 10. In the Tube by E.F. Benson. Narrated by David Sweeney Bear. In the Tube. It's a convention, said Anthony Carling cheerfully. And not a very convincing one. Time, indeed. There is no such thing as time, really. It has no actual existence. Time is nothing more than an infinitesimal point in eternity, just as space is an infinitesimal point in infinity. At the most, time is a sort of tunnel through which we are accustomed to believe that we are travelling. There's a roar in our ears and a darkness in our eyes which makes it seem real to us. But before we came into the tunnel, we existed forever in an infinite sunlight, and after we have got through it, we shall exist in an infinite sunlight again. So why should we bother ourselves about the confusion and noise and darkness which only encompasses us for a moment? For a firm-rooted believer in such immeasurable ideas as these, which he punctuated with brisk application of the poker to the brave sparkle and glow of the fire, Antony has a very pleasant appreciation of the measurable and the finite, and nobody with whom I have acquaintance has so keen a zest for life and its enjoyments as he. He had given us this evening an admirable dinner, had passed round a port beyond praise, and had illuminated the jolly hours with the light of his infectious optimism. Now the small company had melted away, and I was left with him over the fire in his study. Outside the tattoo of wind-driven sleet was audible on the window-panes, overscoring now and again the flap of the flames on the open hearth, and the thought of the chilly blasts and the snow-covered pavement in Brompton Square, across which to skidding taxicabs the last of his other guests had scurried, made my position, resident here till tomorrow morning, the more delicately delightful. Above all, there was this stimulating and suggestive companion, who, whether he talked of the great abstractions which were so intensely real and practical to him, or of the very remarkable experiences which he had encountered among these conventions of time and space, was equally fascinating to the listener. "'I adore life,' he said. "'I find it the most entrancing plaything. "'It's a delightful game, and, as you know very well, "'the only conceivable way to play a game "'is to treat it extremely seriously. "'If you say to yourself, it's only a game, "'you cease to take the slightest interest in it. "'You have to know that it's only a game, "'and behave as if it was the one object of existence. "'I should like it to go on for many years yet.' but all the time one has to be living on the true plane as well, which is eternity and infinity. If you come to think of it, the one thing which the human mind cannot grasp is the finite, not the infinite, the temporary, not the eternal. That sounds rather paradoxical, said I. Only because you've made a habit of thinking about things that seem bounded and limited. Look it in the face for a minute. Try to imagine finite time and space, and you find you can't. Go back a million years, and multiply that million of years by another million, and you find that you can't conceive of a beginning. What happened before that beginning? Another beginning, and another beginning? And before that? Look at it like that, and you'll find that the only solution comprehensible to you is the existence of an eternity, something that never began and will never end. It's the same about space. Project yourself to the farthest star— and what comes beyond that? Emptiness? Go on through the emptiness, and you can't imagine it being finite and having an end. It must needs go on forever, 
that's the only thing you can understand. There's no such thing as before or after, or beginning or end, and what a comfort that is. I should fidget myself to death if there wasn't the huge soft cushion of eternity to lean one's head against. Some people say, I believe I've heard you say it yourself, that the idea of eternity is so tiring you feel that you want it to stop. But that's because you're thinking of eternity in terms of time, and mumbling in your brain, and after that, and after that. Don't you grasp the idea that in eternity there isn't any after, any more than there is any before? It's all one. Eternity isn't a quantity, it's a quality. Sometimes, when Antony talks in this manner, I seem to get a glimpse of that which to his mind is so transparently clear and solidly real, at other times, not having a brain that readily envisages abstractions, I feel as though he was pushing me over a precipice, and my intellectual faculties grasp wildly at anything tangible or comprehensible. This was the case now, and I hastily interrupted. But there is a before and after, I said. A few hours ago you gave us an admirable dinner, and after that, yes, after, we played bridge. And now you are going to explain things a little more clearly to me, and after that I shall go to bed. He laughed. You shall do exactly as you like, he said, and you shan't be a slave to time either tonight or tomorrow morning. We won't even mention an hour for breakfast, but you shall have it in eternity whenever you awake. And as I see it's not midnight yet, we'll slip the bonds of time and talk quite infinitely. I will stop the clock, if that will assist you in getting rid of your illusion, and then I'll tell you a story which, to my mind, shows how unreal so-called realities are, or, at any rate, how fallacious are our senses as judges of what is real and what is not. Something occult, something spookish, I asked, pricking up my ears, for Antony has the strangest clairvoyances and visions of things unseen by the normal eye. I suppose you might call some of it occult, he said, though there's a certain amount of rather grim reality mixed up in it. Go on, excellent mixture, said I. He threw a fresh log on the fire. It's a longish story. You may stop me as soon as you've had enough, but there will come a point for which I claim your consideration. You, who cling to your before and after, has it ever occurred to you how difficult it is to say when an incident takes place? Say that a man commits some crime of violence, can we not, with a good deal of truth, say that he really commits that crime when he definitely plans and determines upon it, dwelling on it with gusto? The actual commission of it, I think we can reasonably argue, is the mere material sequel of his resolve. He is guilty of it when he makes that determination. When, therefore, in the term of before and after, does the crime truly take place? There is also in my story a further point for your consideration— for it seems certain that the spirit of a man, after the death of his body, is obliged to re-enact such a crime, with a view, I suppose we may guess, to his remorse and his eventual redemption. Those who have second sight have seen such re-enactments. Perhaps he may have done his deed blindly in this life, but then his spirit recommits it with its spiritual eyes open and able to comprehend its enormity. So shall we view the man's original determination and the material commission of his crime only as preludes to the real commission of it, when with eyes unsealed he does it and repents of it?
That all sounds very obscure when I speak in the abstract, but I think you'll see what I mean if you follow my tale. Comfortable? Got everything you want? Here goes, then. He leaned back in his chair, concentrating his mind, and then spoke. The story that I'm about to tell you had its beginning a month ago when you were away in Switzerland. It reached its conclusion, so I imagine, last night. I do not at any rate expect to experience any more of it. Well, a month ago I was returning late on a very wet night from dining out. There was not a taxi to be had, and I hurried through the pouring rain to the tube station at Piccadilly Circus, and thought myself very lucky to catch the last train in this direction. The carriage into which I stepped was quite empty, except for one other passenger, who sat next the door, immediately opposite to me. I had never, to my knowledge, seen him before, but I found my attention vividly fixed on him, as if he somehow concerned me. He was a man of middle age, in dress clothes, and his face wore an expression of intense thought, as if in his mind he was pondering some very significant matter, and his hand, which was resting on his knee, clenched and unclenched itself. Suddenly he looked up and stared me in the face, and I saw there suspicion and fear, as if I had surprised him in some secret deed. At that moment we stopped at Dover Street, and the conductor threw open the doors, announced the station, and added, Change here for Hyde Park Corner and Gloucester Road. That was all right for me, since it meant that the train would stop at Brompton Road, which was my destination. It was all right, apparently, too, for my companion, for he certainly did not get out, and after a moment's stop, during which no one else got in, we went on. I saw him, I must insist, after the doors were closed and the train had started. But when I looked again, as we rattled on, I saw that there was no one there. I was quite alone in the carriage. Now you may think that I had had one of those swift momentary dreams which flash in and out of the mind in the space of a second, but I did not believe it was so myself, for I felt that I had experienced some sort of premonition or clairvoyant vision. A man, the semblance of whom, astral body, or whatever you may choose to call it, I had just seen, would sometimes sit in that seat opposite to me, pondering and planning. But why? I asked. Why should it have been the astral body of a living man which you thought you had seen? Why not the ghost of a dead one? Because of my own sensations. The sight of the spirit of someone dead, which has occurred to me two or three times in my life, has always been accompanied by a physical shrinking and fear, and by the sensation of cold and of loneliness. I believed, at any rate, that I had seen a phantom of the living, and that impression was confirmed, I might say proved, the next day. For I met the man himself, and the next night, as you shall hear, I met the phantom again. We will take them in order. I was lunching then, the next day, with my neighbour, Mrs. Stanley. There was a small party, and when I arrived we waited but for the final guest. He entered while I was talking to some friend, and presently at my elbow I heard Mrs. Stanley's voice. "'Let me introduce you to Sir Henry Pale,' she said. I turned and saw my vis-a-vis -vis of the night before. It was quite unmistakably he, and as we shook hands he looked at me, I thought, with vague and puzzled recognition. "'Haven't we met before, Mr. Carling?' he said. "'I seem to recollect.' For the moment I forgot the strange manner of his disappearance from the carriage, and thought that it had been the man himself whom I had seen last night. 
Surely, and not so long ago, I said, for we sat opposite each other in the last tube train from Piccadilly Circus yesterday night. He still looked at me, frowning, puzzled, and shook his head. That can hardly be. I only came up from the country this morning. Now this interested me profoundly, for the astral body, we are told, abides in some half-conscious region of the mind or spirit, and has recollections of what has happened to it, which it can convey only very vaguely and dimly to the conscious mind. All lunchtime I could see his eyes again and again directed to me, with the same puzzled and perplexed air, and as I was taking my departure he came up to me. I shall recollect some day where we met before, and I hope we may meet again. Was it not? And he stopped. No, it has gone from me, he added. The log that Antony had thrown on the fire was burning bravely now, and its high flickering flame lit up his face. Now, I don't know whether you believe in coincidences as chance things, but if you do, get rid of the notion, or if you can't at once, call it a coincidence that that very night I again caught the last train on the tube going westwards. This time, so far from my being a solitary passenger, there was a considerable crowd waiting at Dover Street, where I entered, and just as the noise of the approaching train began to reverberate in the tunnel, I caught sight of Sir Henry Pale standing near the opening from which the train would presently emerge, apart from the rest of the crowd. And I thought to myself how odd it was that I should have seen the phantom of him at this very hour last night, and the man himself now, and I began walking towards him with the idea of saying— Anyhow, it is in the tube that we meet to-night. And then a terrible and awful thing happened. Just as the train emerged from the tunnel, he jumped down onto the line in front of it, and the train swept along over him up the platform. For a moment I was stricken with horror at the sight, and I remember covering my eyes against the dreadful tragedy. But then I perceived that, though it had taken place in full sight of those who were waiting, no one seemed to have seen it except myself. The driver, looking out from his window, had not applied his brakes. There was no jolt from the advancing train, no scream, no cry, and the rest of the passengers began boarding the train with perfect nonchalance. I must have staggered, for I felt sick and faint with what I had seen, and some kindly soul put his arm round me and supported me into the train. He was a doctor, he told me, and asked if I was in pain or what ailed me. I told him what I thought I had seen, and he assured me that no such accident had taken place. It was clear then to my own mind that I had seen the second act, so to speak, in this psychical drama, and I pondered next morning over the problem as to what I should do. Already I had glanced at the morning paper, which, as I knew would be the case, contained no mention whatever of what I had seen. The thing had certainly not happened— but I knew in myself that it would happen. The flimsy veil of time had been withdrawn from my eyes, and I had seen into what you would call the future. In terms of time, of course it was the future, but from my point of view the thing was just as much in the past as it was in the future. It existed, and waited only for its material fulfilment. The more I thought about it, the more I saw I could do nothing. I interrupted his narrative. "'You did nothing!' I exclaimed. "'Surely you might have taken some step in order to try to avert the tragedy.' He shook his head. "'What step, precisely? Was I to go to Sir Henry and tell him that once more I had seen him in the tube, in the act of committing suicide?' 
Look at it like this. Either what I had seen was pure illusion, pure imagination, in which case it had no existence or significance at all, or it was actual and real, and essentially it had happened. Or take it, though not very logically, somewhere between the two. Say that the idea of suicide, for some cause of which I knew nothing, had occurred to him, or would occur. Should I not, if that was the case, be doing a very dangerous thing by making such a suggestion to him? Might not the fact of my telling him what I had seen put the idea into his mind, or, if it was already there, confirm it and strengthen it? It's a ticklish matter to play with souls, as Browning says. But it seems so inhuman not to interfere in any way, said I, not to make any attempt. What interference? asked he. What attempt? The human instinct in me still seemed to cry aloud at the thought of doing nothing to avert such a tragedy, but it seemed to be beating itself against something austere and inexorable. And cudgel my brain as I would, I could not combat the sense of what he had said. I had no answer for him, and he went on. You must recollect, too, he said, that I believed then and believe now that the thing had happened. The cause of it, whatever that was, had begun to work, and the effect in this material sphere was inevitable. That is what I alluded to when, at the beginning of my story, I asked you to consider how difficult it was to say when an action took place. You still hold that this particular action, this suicide of Sir Henry, had not yet taken place, because he had not yet thrown himself under the advancing train. To me, that seems a materialistic view. I hold that in all but the endorsement of it, so to speak, it had taken place. I fancy that Sir Henry, for instance, now free from the material dusks, knows that himself. Exactly as he spoke there swept through the warm-lit room a current of ice-cold air, ruffling my hair as it passed me, and making the wood flames on the hearth to dwindle and flare. I looked round to see if the door at my back had opened, but nothing stirred there, and over the closed window the curtains were fully drawn. As it reached Antony, he sat up quickly in his chair, and directed his glance this way and that about the room. "'Did you feel that?' he asked. "'Yes, a sudden draught," I said. "'Ice cold. Anything else? Any other sensation?' I paused before I answered, for at the moment there occurred to me Antony's differentiation of the effects produced on the beholder by a phantasm of the living and the apparition of the dead. It was the latter which accurately described my sensations now, a certain physical shrinking, a fear, a feeling of desolation. But yet I had seen nothing. I felt rather creepy, I said. As I spoke I drew my chair rather closer to the fire, and sent a swift and, I confess, a somewhat apprehensive scrutiny round the walls of the brightly lit room. I noticed at the same time that Antony was peering across to the chimney-piece, on which, just below a sconce holding two electric lights, stood the clock, which at the beginning of our talk he had offered to stop. The hands, I noticed, pointed to twenty-five minutes to one. "'But you saw nothing?' he asked. "'Nothing whatever,' I said. "'Why should I? What was there to see? Or did you?' "'I don't think so,' he said. Somehow this answer got on my nerves, for the queer feeling which had accompanied that cold current of air had not left me. If anything, it had become more acute. "'But surely you know whether you saw anything or not,' I said. "'One can't always be certain,' said he. 
I say that I don't think I saw anything, but I'm not sure either whether the story I am telling you was quite concluded last night. I think there may be a further incident. If you prefer it, I will leave the rest of it, as far as I know it, unfinished till tomorrow morning, and you can go off to bed now. His complete calmness and tranquillity reassured me. But why should I do that? I asked. Again he looked round on the bright walls. Well, I think something entered the room just now, and it may develop. If you don't like the notion, you had better go. Of course, there's nothing to be alarmed at. Whatever it is, it can't hurt us. But it is close on the hour when, on two successive nights, I saw what I have already told you, and an apparition usually occurs at the same time. Why that is so, I cannot say, but certainly it looks as if a spirit that is earth-bound is still subject to certain conventions, the conventions of time, for instance. I think that personally I shall see something before long, but most likely you won't. You're not such a sufferer as I from these these delusions. I was frightened, and knew it, but I was also intensely interested, and some perverse pride wriggled within me at his last words. Why, so I asked myself, shouldn't I see whatever was to be seen? I don't want to go in the least, I said. I want to hear the rest of your story. Where was I, then? Ah, yes, you were wondering why I didn't do something after I saw the train move up to the platform, and I said that there was nothing to be done. If you think it over, I fancy you will agree with me. A couple of days passed, and on the third morning I saw in the paper that there had come fulfilment to my vision. Sir Henry Pale, who had been waiting on the platform of Dover Street Station for the last train to South Kensington, had thrown himself in front of it as it came into the station. The train had been pulled up in a couple of yards, but a wheel had passed over his chest, crushing it in and instantly killing him. An inquest was held, and there emerged at it one of those dark stories which, on occasions like these, sometimes fall like a midnight shadow across a life that the world perhaps had thought prosperous. He had long been on bad terms with his wife, from whom he had lived apart, and it appeared that not long before this he had fallen desperately in love with another woman. The night before his suicide he had appeared very late at his wife's house, and had a long and angry scene with her in which he entreated her to divorce him threatening otherwise to make her life a hell to her. She refused, and, in an ungovernable fit of passion, he attempted to strangle her. There was a struggle, and the noise of it caused her manservant to come up, who succeeded in overmastering him. Lady Pale threatened to proceed against him for assault with the intention to murder her. With this hanging over his head, the next night, as I have already told you, he committed suicide. He glanced at the clock again, and I saw that the hands now pointed to ten minutes to one. The fire was beginning to burn low, and the room surely was growing strangely cold. "'That's not quite all,' said Antony, again looking round. "'Are you sure you wouldn't prefer to hear it tomorrow?' The mixture of shame and pride and curiosity again prevailed. "'No, tell me the rest of it at once,' I said. Before speaking, he peered suddenly at some point behind my chair, shading his eyes. I followed his glance, and knew what he meant by saying that sometimes one could not be sure whether one saw something or not. But was that an outlined shadow that intervened between me and the wall? It was difficult to focus. I did not know whether it was near the wall or near my chair. It seemed to clear away, anyhow, as I looked more closely at it. "'You see nothing?' asked Antony. 
No, I don't think so, said I. And you? I think I do, he said, and his eyes followed something which was invisible to mine. They came to rest between him and the chimney-piece. Looking steadily there, he spoke again. All this happened some weeks ago, when you were out in Switzerland, and since then, up till last night, I saw nothing further. But all the time I was expecting something further. I felt that, as far as I was concerned, it was not all over yet, and last night, with the intention of assisting any communication to come through to me from, from beyond, I went into the Dover Street tube station at a few minutes before one o'clock, the hour at which both the assault and the suicide had taken place. The platform, when I arrived on it, was absolutely empty, or appeared to be so, but presently, just as I began to hear the roar of the approaching train, I saw there was a figure of a man standing some twenty yards from me, looking into the tunnel. He had not come down with me in the lift, and the moment before he had not been there. He began moving towards me, and then I saw who it was, and I felt a stir of wind, icy cold, coming towards me as he approached. It was not the draught that heralds the approach of a train, for it came from the opposite direction. He came close up to me, and I saw there was recognition in his eyes. He raised his face towards me, and I saw his lips move, but, perhaps in the increasing noise from the tunnel, I heard nothing come from them. He put out his hand, as if entreating me to do something, and, with a cowardice for which I cannot forgive myself, I shrank from him, for I knew, by the sign that I have told you, that this was one from the dead, and my flesh quaked before him, drowning for the moment all pity and all desire to help him, if that was possible. Certainly he had something which he wanted of me, but I recoiled from him, and by now the train was emerging from the tunnel, and next moment, with a dreadful gesture of despair, he threw himself in front of it. As he finished speaking he got up quickly from his chair, still looking fixedly in front of him. I saw his pupils dilate, and his mouth worked. It is coming. I am to be given a chance of atoning for my cowardice. There is nothing to be afraid of. I must remember that myself. As he spoke there came from the panelling above the chimney-piece one loud shattering crack, and the cold wind again circled about my head. I found myself shrinking back in my chair, with my hands held in front of me, as instinctively I screened myself against something which I knew was there, but could not see. Every sense told me that there was a presence in the room other than mine and Antony's, and the horror of it was that I could not see it. Any vision, however terrible would, I felt, be more tolerable than this clear, certain knowledge that close to me was this invisible thing. And yet what horror might not be disclosed of the face of the dead and the crushed chest? But all I could see, as I shuddered in this cold wind, was the familiar walls of the room, and Antony standing in front of me, stiff and firm, making, as I knew, a call on his courage. His eyes were focused on something quite close to him, and some semblance of a smile quivered on his mouth. And then he spoke again. Yes, I know you, and you want something of me. Tell me, then, what it is. There was absolute silence. But what was silence to my ears could not have been to his, for once or twice he nodded, and once he said, Yes, I see, I will do it. And with the knowledge that, even as there was someone here whom I could not see, so there was speech going on which I could not hear, this terror of the dead and of the unknown rose in me with the sense of powerlessness to move that accompanies nightmare. 
I could not stir, I could not speak. I could only strain my ears for the inaudible and my eyes for the unseen, while the cold wind from the very valley of the shadow of death streamed over me. It was not that the presence of death itself was terrible. It was that from its tranquillity and serene keeping there had been driven some unquiet soul, unable to rest in peace for whatever ultimate awakening rouses the countless generations of those who have passed away, driven, no less from whatever activities are theirs, back into the material world from which it should have been delivered. Never, until the gulf between the living and the dead was thus bridged, had it seemed so immense and so unnatural. It is possible that the dead may have communication with the living, and it was not that exactly that so terrified me, for such communication, as we know it, comes voluntarily from them. But here was something icy cold and crime-laden that was chased back from the peace that would not pacify it. And then, most horrible of all, there came a change in these unseen conditions. Antony was silent now, and from looking straight and fixedly in front of him, he began to glance sideways to where I sat and back again, and with that I felt that the unseen presence had turned its attention from him to me. And now, too, gradually and by awful degrees, I began to see. There came an outline of shadow across the chimney-piece and the panels above it. It took shape. It fashioned itself into the outline of a man. Within the shape of the shadow details began to form themselves, and I saw, wavering in the air like something concealed by haze, the semblance of a face, stricken and tragic, and burdened with such a weight of woe as no human face had ever worn. Next the shoulders outlined themselves, and a stain, livid and red, spread out below them, and suddenly the vision leapt into clearness. There he stood, the chest crushed in and drowned in the red stain, from which broken ribs, like the bones of a wrecked ship, protruded. The mournful, terrible eyes were fixed on me, and it was from them, so I knew, that the bitter wind proceeded. Then, quick as the switching off of a lamp, the spectre vanished, and the bitter wind was still, and opposite to me stood Antony, in a quiet, brightly lit room. There was no sense of an unseen presence any more. He and I were then alone, with an interrupted conversation still dangling between us in the warm air. I came round to that, as one comes round after an anaesthetic. It all swam into sight again, unreal at first, and gradually assuming the texture of actuality. You were talking to somebody, not to me, I said. Who was it? What was it? He passed the back of his hand over his forehead, which glistened in the light. A soul in hell, he said. Now, it is hard ever to recall mere physical sensations when they have passed. If you have been cold and are warmed, it is difficult to remember what cold was like. If you have been hot and have got cool, it is difficult to realize what the oppression of heat really meant. Just so, with the passing of that presence, I found myself unable to recapture the sense of terror with which, a few moments ago only, it had invaded and inspired me. A soul in hell, I said. What are you talking about? He moved about the room for a minute or so, and then came and sat on the arm of my chair. I don't know what you saw, he said, or what you felt, but there has never in all my life happened to me anything more real than what these last few minutes have brought. I have talked to a soul in the hell of remorse, which is the only possible hell.
He knew from what happened last night that he could perhaps establish communication through me with the world he had quitted, and he sought me and found me. I am charged with a mission to a woman I have never seen, a message from the contrite. You can guess who it is. He got up with a sudden briskness. Let's verify it anyhow, he said. He gave me the street and the number. Ah, there's the telephone book. Would it be a coincidence merely if I found that at number 20 in Chasemore Street, South Kensington, there lived a Lady Pale? He turned over the leaves of the bulky volume. Yes, that's right, he said. Thanks for listening. This was a DSB Audio production, narrated and produced by David Sweeney Bear. Visit dsbaudio.com for more full-length audiobooks. If you enjoyed this episode, leave me a comment and let me know what you thought. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast for future episodes and check out the DSB Audio channel on youtube.com. Until the next time, happy listening. Thank you.